Welcome to Live from Platerscape. My name is Mario Veen. When we look at the situation of the prisoners in Plato's cave, their world is only one tiny part of all there is. They think that all that exists is the shadows on the wall, and they are unaware of the fire, the way upwards, and everything at the surface. They are in a tiny cave while there is a whole universe out there. But how can you possibly imagine what the universe looks like when all you've ever seen is the cave? Have you ever looked at the stars at night and wondered what else is out there and tried to imagine what it might look like? Our guide today is astrophysicist Vincent Icke. In his book Einstein's Travel Agency, he writes, Our country is not the only inhabited area on the planet. Our planet is not the only one in the solar system. Our sun is not the only star in the Milky Way which contains between 200 and 400 billion stars. Our solar system is not the only planetary system in the Milky Way. We already discovered 4,000 others with over 5,000 planets, and we only just started to look. Our Milky Way is not the only galaxy in the universe. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies like ours. Vincent also writes, the matter that we consist of is the most common stuff in the universe. All those planets, all those stars and galaxies were created from the same kinds of matter that we find in ourselves and around us. The energy required for life is radiated by every star. And the deep time required for biological evolution unfolds in every place. Vincent Icke is professor of theoretical astrophysics at Leiden University and professor of cosmology at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Among his main research interests are cosmology, the relationship between dark matter and dark energy, and the formation of structure in the universe. He is actively involved in raising awareness about science and wrote many books in Dutch and English. In this episode, we mainly discuss themes from his two most recent books. The first is Gravity Does Not Exist, a puzzle for the 21st century, about the relationship between relativity and quantum theory. And the second is Einstein's travel agency, about the quest for extraterrestrial life. Vincent is also a visual artist, whose work covers a wide range of styles and media. For instance, imagining what an alien spaceship might look like. Vincent, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Hello, that's fine, of course. Thanks for the invitation. It's a bit awkward. We switch from, uh, we're both Dutch and we switch to English. So we're two Dutch people having an English conversation, right? Well, that's all right. I mean, you know, that happens all over the place. And yeah, so that, yeah. that's no problem whatsoever. So you're, you're not only a theoretical physicist and astrophysicist, but you're also an official artist. For you, are those two separate professions or are they connected? Well, both actually. I mean, they are definitely separate professions. And I must stress that they're both professions. I mean, as a physicist, I don't have a physics hobby. And as an artist, I don't have art as a hobby. I mean, I really am a profession in both cases. Um, the connections are fairly straightforward in, in both in art 
and in science uh, research um, is the, the key item. Um, and in another sense, attentiveness. I mean, you, you have to be attentive to certain things, right? In, in art, uh, it's the attention that you have to the image. Um, in science, it's the attention that you have to the behavior of the universe. Yeah, I saw um, the, the Dutch artist Mondrian that, that most people know, I think, from the, the paintings with the squares and uh, very, uh, I would say, simple paintings, but they're not simple, of course. And uh, I think someone like Mondrian was also busy with looking at the tree or looking at the world and trying to really reduce it to the essence uh, of something. Is that something that a physicist does as well? Well, we, I hesitate to use the word essence because that in a sense that this is sort of a, a claim to something. Um, I, I'd, I'd rather use it as summary. Hmm. I mean, uh, in, in physics, we, we, we can describe what happens in the clouds of the, of the atmosphere. Um, but every cloud is different from any other cloud, right? But there is a certain cloudness so to speak, uh, a certain summary that we have of physical processes. Um, and it's, I hesitate to use the word um, essential. I hesitate to use the word fundamental. Um, simple is perhaps the, the best one can, can find, but I, I do not mean simple in the sense that it is simple to understand certain things because even the clouds in the sky are very complex but simple in that it has very few ingredients. And what those ingredients are is, of course, subject to research, that is subject to taste, it is subject to historical development. And something similar you have in the arts, okay? What, what you use as ingredients for your work of art can, can differ enormously, of course, between artists, but also in the, in the work, uh, in the works, I should say, of an artist herself or himself. And you have uh, currently you have an image behind you of your own work, which of course uh, listeners cannot see. Um, <laughs> yeah. could, you, could you describe uh, <laughs> uh, what it is? Uh, and so how yeah, you made that, it? Yeah, that is a very special year now with all these telecoms and things like that. Um, the image that I've chosen this time, my background is not my library where I'm sitting now, but. Um, it's an image of an interstellar spacecraft. Um, I have an art project currently going, asking the question, what would a galactic spaceship look like? And the first thing to realize that if you can travel the galaxy as a civilization, you don't have a spaceship, you have a space-time ship. Um, the behavior in space and in time of these things is extremely interesting um, for us. Space is the enemy. Space is dangerous. There is not a single place on Earth that is for, as dangerous to us as space. Um, but if you are uh, a representative of a galactic civilization, space is not your enemy. Space is your friend. Space is natural. Space to an intergalactic civilization is like what water is to a fish or what the air is for a bird. And I have developed a sort of algebraic set of equations that describe the motion of these spaceships, which is not an individual thing, but it is rather similar to a flock of birds or a school of fish, um, a lot of separate entities that together make up one superorganism. And that superorganism can travel in space and in time. And just like uh, a fish can travel by pushing against the water, 
my spaceships, my space-time ships, can travel by pushing against space, right? And that is the kind of that that makes a sort of uh, three-dimensional sculpture, and an image of that, which you purely invented, of course, but uh, an image of that is what you see on my uh, on my screen here. Mm. Perhaps if we imagine a spaceship, we imagine well, basically a f- a flying car. <laughs> yeah. and, and a car a car is designed for travel on on a planet with gravity and uh keeping you protected from the weather and uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. all those other things yeah yeah exactly if, if you want to see how limited the imagination is of people who make science fiction movies um just watch one of those star wars movies and you will see that uh, an intergalactic quote-unquote battleship I mean, the idea, just the idea that you have intergalactic battle is ridiculous from a physics point of view, but never mind that. Um, You have an intergalactic battleship, and the orientation is always like you have with aircraft on on Earth, right? It has a sort of flat shape, and it has a top, and it has a bottom, and it has a sort of orientation such that it, it really feels, if you are in the auditorium, as if you are flying in a squadron of aircraft now there is no up there is no down in space and as you just said you know you, you can just simply go anywhere you jolly well please without having to worry about your, your your up or your down or something like that so that is extremely limited i of course i understand why because you have an audience and you have to connect with your audience and if you you know if if you go too far then that connection is lost now of course for people who want to make money by making movies, that's one thing. But if you are an artist, uh, you have a different set of restrictions. Um, you, you don't have to worry about the fact that your audience, you will lose your audience if you turn your image upside down. Mm. And how is this is as a, a physicist? Because I, uh, I know that, uh, at least in the Netherlands, you're quite often invited to... to when the latest, well, discovery, I say in quotation marks, let's say the latest media event around physics is there, you're invited and you're invited to comment on uh, on something. And usually you're in a room with um, very nice images, uh, which I think in, if you read in very small letters, it usually says artist rendering, like very colorful <laughs> black holes or yeah. muons, which are like uh, spinning tops uh, with stars flying by. Um, how do you... Uh, yeah, what's your approach? Because you you are going there. You do. I, I think you are a, a great science communicator. You You do go there. You do find it important to communicate about physics, physics, not just to your colleagues, but to a general audience. <laughs> Another question is, isn't it frustrating that um, you, yeah, that's what I would imagine if... Uh, no, it's not frustrating in the least. Um, no. if, if one communicating science is communicating with other people, whether it's my colleagues or, you know, my, my hairdresser or whoever else, right? Um, and in a sense, all forms of communication in, in science and otherwise consist of two parts. It's content and it is theatre. Um, and the only thing that you know is that the content plus theatre is 100%. But how you divide these two depends on your audience. 
So the first thing that you have to do when connecting with another person about communicating science is you have to ask yourself how much content and how much theater will I put into my communication? Now, for my colleagues, um, there is a certain fraction of theater. I mean, there's, none of these is ever zero if you do it right, okay? But when I communicate with my colleagues about, about our science, then the, the theatrical part is relatively small. If someone stops me in the street and says, hey, I saw you on television the other day, uh, can you tell me something more about black holes? Then I will try to find out what the, the, the content is that this person is really asking for. Yeah. So then the theater might be a little bit bigger than that would be in other circumstances. But the, the key thing to realize when communicating is that it is communis, it is together. Right. I mean, it, it isn't as if I open somebody's head and pour physics in, right? I mean, you, you're trying to connect with another head, with another person, and someone is living in that head already. And you have to respect that. You have to first find out who is it that I'm talking with and how am I going to try and communicate? The second thing, of course, is once you do that, it becomes an interaction. And that is why this, this uh, COVID year is so enormously frustrating, because the connection that you have when you're in a theater, when you're in a lecture room, when you're just walking out in the street and talking to someone, that is just all lost. And that makes it sort of unidirectional. So the communication part is effectively, it sounds a bit dramatic, but the communication part is effectively a matter of connecting with individuals. If I stand in front of a, a lecture room or an audience, I have 300 people in the, audi in, in the auditorium, I still must try to connect with every single person individually, right? That, that sounds weird, but it is really what you have to try and do. Basically, it is similar to talk about theater in, in my opinion, it is similar to what, what uh, a, a player in a play does or someone who, who figures in a movie. Um, you have to think of this other person and only when that connection is more or less established, then you can start talking about the subject that you want to talk about. And it could be the, the Big Bang or, or black holes or the origin of life in the universe, whatever else it is that you talk about. Well, in... Our case, we don't have. Uh, uh, well, we're audio only. We don't have a visual part, mm -hmm. but we do have a visual part. I think in the imagination of people who listen to this, which uh, I guess our stage, our theater would be Plato's Cave, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which is um, yeah one of I think the most no the the best known stories in Western philosophy. Which is also why why I chose this one to try to connect with people and to kind of try to act as an intermediary because anybody can read the story and you, the more you zoom in, the more we have this Dutch uh, uh, poet, Sue Dilder, who said, hoe verder hij kijkt, hoe groter het leek. Am I saying it right? Hoe verder hij kijkt, ja. Jules Dilder, it's a very famous uh, couple of lines, right? Hoe verder je kijkt, hoe groter het leek. Yeah, right. That, that's it. so. the 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 farther he looked, the the bigger it uh, seemed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> a long introduction. Yeah, but let me interrupt you there because, um, of course, I I know this particular poem. One, I made a modification of this because the point is that if you look out in space, you're looking back in time. It takes time for light to travel through the universe. 
So if you look at the moon, you see the moon the way it was 1.3 seconds ago, because the distance to the moon is 1.3 light seconds. You look at the sun, you see the sun as it was 8.3 minutes ago, because that's the distance to the sun in, in light travel time. If you look at the center of our galaxy, you're looking at how it was 24,000 years ago and so on and so forth. Looking out in space is looking back in time. Now, it just so happens that in the past, the universe was smaller. There was less space in the universe in the past than there is today. The universe, in other words, expands. So what happens is that if you look in any direction in the sky, you see the whole history of, this, of, of the universe all the way back to the Big Bang when there was no space. So I once told Dilder that it's rather the other way around. Okay, men merkte al ras dat het steeds kleiner was. Just the further you look, the less you see, because the universe is expanding. Oh, that's really anyway, great. I interrupted you about Plato. Please continue. <laughs> well, I'm thinking if you if you speak about light, the prisoners are sitting there. They're watching the shadows. But the shadows are cast by uh, a light of the fire and someone is walking in front of the fire. So when they're looking at the shadow, what do they see? Just if you look at it in a physical way, what is a shadow? Physically speaking, what you would have, if you just simply take purely the, the, the platonic setup, right? Just from a theatrical point of view, you have a source of light and that light illuminates the back wall of a cave, right? So the light consists of particles. Those particles we call photons. Photons are made in this particular case in, in a fire. And the photons travel into the cave and they hit the back wall. They ricochet, okay? They, 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 they reflect off the back of, of the cave into the eye of a person who is observing, right? Okay, so you see the illumination on the back of the cave. Now, if somebody interrupts that stream of light by standing in front of it or, or, or like you, you make a rabbit out of your hands and you sort of you make, you interrupt the stream of light, then the interrupted part of the light in the back of the cave disappears. So you see a shadow. A shadow doesn't exist. It isn't anything. A shadow is, is the image of the back wall of the cave, which is not illuminated. And that means that by interrupting the stream of light, you can make certain projections. Okay, that is how old-fashioned uh, movies work. You have a piece of celluloid, and on that celluloid you have certain kinds of paint, and you have a light that shines through the paint, and some of the light is interrupted, and some of the light goes through, and that makes a kind of light distribution, and that distribution of light we call an image on the screen. And this is precisely the same in this cave, except that the propagation of light is rather simple. You stop the light or you don't. And if you stop the light, you make a dark spot in the back of the cave. And if you don't stop the light, it is light in the back of the cave. And that would be the physical description. But that, of course, is certainly not what Plato meant, because anyone knows that. <laughs> um, one of my old friends said, uh, a shadow is not a thing. It's a place where light can't get because something is in between. That's correct. <laughs> but are um, all of those photons, uh, so the, the uh, uh, correct me, uh, just uh, feel free to correct me. So the, mm -hmm. the fire emits photons. Mm -hmm. There's something, there's an object be being carried in front of a fire, a cat or something like that, a statue of a cat. And 
some of the photos photons are blocked by the uh, by the object and others aren't and they just move straight from the fire uh, onto the cave wall and are then reflected back to the eye of the prisoner correct and are there no photons at all in the shadow part well that depends um in in inside the cave of course those photons will just scatter around a little bit um and some of them may return to, to the shadow besides which the edges of shadows are never sharp um if the light source in this case the fire is a little bit extended then of course the shadows have a bit of fuzzy circumference even if you have a point source of light the shadow edges are fuzzy because of the quantum effect. A photon is a quantum, and there is a certain kind of refraction effect. Uh, sorry, I should call it diffraction effect. And the diffraction causes the edges of the shadow to be a little blurry. Um, but in principle, you can make shadows in such a way that in the center of the shadow, there is either no light at all or very, very, very little. And how long would it take from the lights to get to the wall if the fire was <laughs> 20 oh, meters behind them. That, 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 that is, for, for us, that is immeasurably small. Mm. I mean, in the old days, people thought that the speed of light is infinite, and that's not a bad approximation, because 300,000 kilometers a second, right? So from, from the fire to the back of the wall, an immeasurably small amount of time from our point of view. Um, as I just mentioned, you know, the, the light from the moon takes 1.3 seconds uh, to reach Earth. And that's already an, an observable and measurable amount of time. And we are 1.3 seconds. We sort of know that. It's more than a heartbeat. Um, the, the, the light travel time from the sun to Earth is 8.3 minutes. Now, for us, that's a long time. You can't even hold your breath for that long. And so if we're going more to Plato's version of the story, how do you interpret this part of the, of the allegory of the prisoner sitting in the cave? The way I understand it, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher, right? You really have to ask an expert. But um, the way I understand it is that the, the pedestrian way of summarizing Plato's story is that things are not what they seem. Um, in particular, things uh, seem simpler and what they really are. And ultimately, what they really are is something that is beyond our understanding, right? We'll always be outside our, our grasp. We will never quite understand. Um, of course, it is the, the first two things I would agree with. Um, the third is something that I consider not proven. Obviously, there may be certain things in our universe that our monkey brain is not equipped to understand. I mean, we, we will never be able to understand the entire universe, but we, for the moment, we have not reached the limit. Um, and what you can say for the shadows, for instance, is the following. Uh, let us imagine that you have a fire and you have a wall in the cave. You put something in between, so you have a shadow. If then you take that object between the fire and the cave, and you turn it around, you know, sort of you rotate it a little bit, you get different shadows. But these are different shadows made by the same object. Now, if you're clever, it is not unthinkable that from a collection of these different shadows, you can reconstruct what the shape in three dimensions, the spatial shape of that object was. In fact, that is, that is already a known technique, the, an MRI scanner that they use in, in hospitals and stuff, effectively works with this principle. 
you look at something from very, very many different directions, and then you can reconstruct what the thing looked like in space. Now, this is, of course, a little bit cheeky to, to say this, because this is a literal interpretation of this fire and cave story. Um, you can always make it more complicated and saying, well, it's only an allegory. You, you just said that yourself, right? And it's just an allegory. What I really mean in a philosophical sense is that you never get all aspects of any given phenomenon or any given object at all times. And therefore, there will always, always be certain things that escape you. Oh, that I would have to agree with. Um, but a physicist already knows that. I mean, I don't think there is one serious physicist on this entire planet who would maintain that we are capable of understanding everything. Mm. Uh, we we skip a little. We skip a few phases in the cave, and and uh, if we go to the uh, part where the prisoner goes to the surface, he or she encounters the platonic forms, which are usually seen as universal and abstract ideas. Uh, what I found really fascinating in your book, Einstein's Travel Agency, is that you, you use the word universal a lot, but somehow I never realized it. You use it in a very literal sense, as in this is something that is very common everywhere in the universe. Uh, this happens everywhere in the, in the universe. And I think that just to go back, to the, <laughs> back into the cave again, uh, the the speed of light is is one of those things that is universal, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And does that have anything to do with the uh, with the idea that we, yeah, we cannot never have perfect knowledge, or we cannot see everything at the same time, or we cannot grasp everything? I don't think so. Um, in in my opinion, again, I'm not a philosopher, but in, in my opinion, the fact that we will never ever be able to understand everything. Um, is due to two things. First, that is the most obvious, is a biological limitation. We are an ape or a monkey or whatever. I mean, we, we are sort of, you know, we just clambered out of the trees and started scampering around on Earth. Um, it is exceedingly unlikely that something as primitive as a monkey, like you and me, with all due respect, but you get my point, um, will ever be able to understand everything. That's just a biological expectation. The second thing is more fundamental, um, and that is that we are finite. There is an immense quantity of neurons in your brain, and they have an, an even more immense quantity of interconnections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's all finite, and that is not only true for us. That is also true for any possible extraterrestrial civilization. If you are an extraterrestrial, you may, in principle, be very, very much smarter. Than, than we as a biological species, but still you will be finite. Because you're finite, it is even in principle impossible to understand everything unless, that is a possibility, unless there is only one very, very, very small set of rules that govern the universe. A finite and very small set of rules. Now that is possible, I mean, after all, we can explain the behavior of matter, the stuff that you and I are made of, by re referring to 17, only 17 different elementary particles. That's quite remarkable that the, 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 you just mentioned the word universal. 
um, these particles are truly universal. If you pick up one electron out of your computer, then you have all electrons of the entire universe in your hands because they're all identical. But you cannot say this about people or, or cats or whatever. They are different because they consist of so many particles. However, if it is true that our universe is governed by a finite set of rules, I hesitate to say laws because that sounds too, too uh, presumptuous, but if the universe is, is, is governed by a finite set of rules, then in principle, it would be possible for a sufficiently advanced brain, for a sufficiently advanced awareness to really understand everything. But I doubt that this is the case, and just purely a, a practical matter. Mm. Because one, uh, one example that you name mm. is that something like an electron can be universal, and uh, you also reason to um, the, the processes actually that make us possible. Uh, mm -hmm. that are universal just just <laughs> just gonna list some things that you say are universal the way stars form mm -hmm. the way uh, planets form in yep. uh, together with stars um c and h so carbon nitrogen hydrogen uh <coughs> the stuff that we are made of which is you say it's the cheapest stuff in the universe that's correct <laughs> it's it's everywhere mm -hmm. um the processes by which chemistry happens so uh from the cnh some complex uh, molecules can uh, can be formed and some of these molecules maybe that's a good place to stop is uh you call them coding molecules like well most people are familiar with the, t the term dna could you explain what the, what a coding molecule is and why we we have dna but uh, that's not the only coding molecule, or maybe not even the most important one, right? Well, for us, uh, for life on Earth, uh, is based on a code, and that code is DNA, deoxynucleic acid. Um, but the it it may be different for different species elsewhere in the universe. Okay, this is what it is for us. It is not excluded that there are coding molecules. Um, elsewhere of a completely different construction. Now, um, our DNA and our biological molecules are, as you said, made out of very simple atoms because those are very plentiful in the universe. We are star stuff, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, and for, for DNA, also phosphorus. Right? Phosphorus is a little bit of a difficult case, but in any case, it, it's still a straightforward atom. Um, the suspicion you may have is that because on Earth we are made of these very abundant, very simple atoms, the probability is that elsewhere that will be also the case. Coding molecules you need because otherwise there will be no generations. Okay, There will be no such thing as a transfer of biological information from one generation to the next. But what sort? that's an abstract statement. In practice, a concrete case of coding molecule we know what DNA does. We have no idea what a coding molecule elsewhere in the universe might look like. Yeah, and you you say that, uh, you write in uh, Einstein's travel agency that the processes by which evolution can happen 
they're universal, but the the results of evolution, they they could be unique. So yeah, that's we have this tremendous variety. Uh, at least as I see it, if we look around us, but this variety itself is not an argument for uniqueness. Th- that is right. Um, the the biological process, as it was uh, discovered by Wallace and Darwin, um, is almost certainly universal, right? Um, uh, the French biochemist uh, Jacques Monod called it le hasard et la nécessité, a chance and necessity. Um, necessity is basically the rules of chemistry, the rules of physics, they are just the same. And the behavior of atoms, once seen one carb- carbon atom, you've seen them all. But, but the chance thing comes about in, the, I think, the technical term for this contingency, right? Yeah. Um, an example that is usually uh, given is the following. Um, you and I, okay, uh, mammals, mammals were very unsuccessful species on the planet Earth until 66 million years ago. There was an asteroid that hit Earth uh, close to where now the island of Yucatan is in, in Mexico um, that caused an ecological catastrophe. Maybe it Maybe Earth was dark for like about two or three years or something because of the junk in the atmosphere. Seventy um, percent of all biological species were exterminated, um, and among those were the most successful uh, species of that time, which is what we call the dinosaurs. They disappeared. In fact, my biological friends tell me that any biological species where the, the, the animals were, were heavier than, let's say, 20, 25 kilograms, disappeared, everything, just bonk, all gone. And then the mammals, which were sort of a mouse-like little creature that dared to go out only at night when the dinosaurs were sleeping, so to speak, could evolve into very, very many different forms, and we are one of those forms. That is contingency. That is chance. If that asteroid had not hit Earth, you and I would not be here having this conversation. And that's the way it goes. And it branches in all sorts of directions. And you cannot say from the beginning in what direction it will go. We know the behavior of carbon. We know the behavior of oxygen. We know that hydrogen comes from the Big Bang, etc., etc. And there is zero chance that you can ever predict from first principles that somewhere along the biological line, you and I will come along. I think you even go so far to say that uh, my D- there's no uh, exact twin of me in terms of DNA. And that's, that's not so hard to compute. I mean, the, um, the DNA molecule consists of, of so many atoms, right? even though there is a very distinct structure in DNA. There are so many different ways in which a DNA uh, molecule can be made that it is an absolute certainty that in terms of genetic makeup, you are an unique in the entire universe. But if I take one of your cells and out of one of your cells, I get your DNA and out of that DNA, I take one carbon atom, then that carbon atom is identical all carbon atoms all over the universe, well, except for small details. I mean, there are sort of carbon nuclei that are a little bit lighter and carbon nuclei that are a little bit heavier, but it's a physical detail. Mm. In um, uh, 
two uh, episodes ago, we spoke about geology with uh, Marcia Björnerud. And I'm mm-hmm. also thinking about the previous episode with Ernst van Alphen, where we spoke about um, the, I think it's called effect, but it's the, the ability to hold two, I, two ideas or two thoughts or two uh, things that do not go together, that, but are both valid in, in your mind. So that's, that's what I'm experiencing when thinking about this relationship between uh, necessity and uh, contingency. And um, if I try to summarize uh, Marcia correctly, um, I think what she was saying is that, yes, the processes by which uh, our planet Earth could form are universal and uh, uh, probably they happen in other places as well. But then focusing on the contingency um, that she, I think she said literally uh, that's what gave Earth a chance. But um, the the uh, comet that you mentioned uh, 65 million years ago was only one of the five major disasters. And I think it was uh, even place number four, not, not even in the top three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every time something like that happened, um, the earth somehow found a new balance again. And I think she was, she was looking at that. Maybe I'm very interested to hear you, your view on that. Okay. We can have maybe the initial state of the earth with the, with the initial um, uh, processes for evolution and, uh, and uh, small, I think you call it like uh, uh, green, green stuff, one cellular life or something like that. But what are the chances that complex life forms evolve from this? I think the answer is we don't know. Um, the processes of star formation and planet formation are very, very well studied. Um, here in the Netherlands, um, one of the leading lights there is Professor Ewine van Dishoek. Uh, and uh, Professor van Dishoek basically single-handedly uh, started the subject of cosmochemistry which is currently one of the main areas of of astronomy. Um, We, I wouldn't say we know, but it's not much of an exaggeration to say that we know how stars form, we know how planets form, um, but that does not mean that if you follow that generic process of star formation and planet formation, you will be able to predict how any specific individual planet will form right? Um, From geology, from the history of our solar system and things like that, we can reconstruct a lot about the way in which our solar system and Earth formed, but there are still things that we do do not know. Um, And even apart from that, even if we could reconstruct exactly what the history of our solar system was, then there will be other solar systems where this will be completely different. How many exoplanets have we discovered at the moment? Uh, So far, I think four or 5,000. And that is a minuscule amount. It's it's very difficult research. I mean, it's really tough. Um, But um, we have, I think, four or 5,000 or something thereabouts. Um, And we're counting. Um, On the other hand, um, we know from the theory of star formation and planet formation and things, that there are something of the order of maybe a thousand or two thousand billion planets in our galaxy, right? 
um, of which though, of those we have seen a an, an negatively small fraction. Um, even so, with, with that sample of four, five thousand, six thousand planters that we have today, um, we can draw very, very far-reaching conclusions about the process of planet formation. Mm. I think, um, yeah, this discrepancy between how much how much there is or how much there uh, we we know theoretically, uh, I would say there is, and how much we have actually observed, um, and then also the. Then of course people will ask, well, but how do you know that? I think this is one of the fascinating discussions <laughs> in our time because that's it. It goes to the heart of also trust in science. I think right because when people say, well, uh, oh, evolution theory, oh yeah, it's it's a theory. Something else could be possible or a theory of relativity. I'm sure you get lots of people uh, telling you that they actually prove that it's not true or something like that. Um, my question is, what, what is a theory? How do you see a theory? Um, I think it was Thomas Henry Huxley who said that um, a physical theory is organized common sense. Um, so it is, it is something that we can easily relate to, you know, observable things, things you can touch, things that you can see, things that you can throw about, uh, things that you can chop into pieces, etc., 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 but organized. And for us, it is all a matter of finding what that organization is, right? Um, a theory in physics is not just simply a story, or whether I think the current phrase is a narrative, right? It's not a story, it's not a narrative. A theory has a certain cohesion and a certain connection with other theories, right? Um, mm. it, is, it is a construction. That construction is not just something we have invented, but it is a construction that we test against what we observe in the universe. You can come up with a story, right? And then it's just a story. Like in the beginning, God created la de blah de blah That's a good story, nothing wrong with the story, except it doesn't tally with what we observe in the universe, and therefore we have to discard it. Now, in physics, we discard and we discard and discard everything until finally we come up with a theory, a coherent description of what is actually going on. Now, that description, of course, is subject to change because science doesn't just simply sit and, and, and uh, admire itself, so to speak. We continually change, we query, uh, we criticize, uh, we get new observations, we find contradictions, we find new openings of uh, difficult questions and so on and so forth. So a physics theory evolves. And in fact, it is not all that different, in a sense, from the evolution in biology that we were just talking about. You try a lot of different things, you discard what doesn't work, and you keep what fits. And this way, you get a coherent description of your current state of knowledge. And I deliberately say the current state of knowledge, because tomorrow we will know more, tomorrow we will understand more. Uh, the day after tomorrow, we will understand even more. Uh, maybe some of the things that we think we understand today, we have to revise. One other thing that one has to be aware of is that in the physical sciences, we almost never throw something away. I mean, the, the, the romantic image that the general public has 
of a, a theorists, you know, people like myself and so on and so forth, is that we are rebels. You know, we destroy what went before. <laughs> you uh, overthrow we everything we knew. And yeah, yeah. right. No. I mean, the, 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 the explanation, the uh, similarity I sometimes give is like a dentist. If you go to the dentist with a toothache, you do not expect the dentist to remove all of your teeth and put something else in. You, you would not accept that for a fraction of a second. <laughs> a good dentist removes what absolutely has to be removed and cannot be maintained, but retains absolutely everything else. So if I go to a dentist with a toothache, maybe you know I need a root canal, but then the, the, the main part of my tooth is still standing. Or maybe, unfortunately, that tooth will have to be removed and they put something else made out of plastic or whatever it is these days instead. But you mm. don't remove the good teeth. And it is in this way that the physical theory also evolves. It is it's a classical cases. You can use Newtonian mechanics for daily purposes. Nothing wrong with that. But once you try to describe what happens in our universe for objects that move, shall we say, with 200,000 kilometers a second, Newtonian mechanics is not good enough anymore. You have to use relativity mechanics. That's okay. But relativity mechanics has in itself the description of Newtonian mechanics, except under special circumstances, namely the special circumstances that things move very slowly. But it's all one coherent construct. Hmm. That's, uh, uh, it's really fascinating in your book, Gravity Does Not Exist how you explain this process of theory formation uh, starting very simply and, uh, and building it up. And um, I saw a very, you know, in the, in the faces of Plato's cave, I saw this connection between, um, you know, in the cave, as you say, things move very slowly. Uh, things are very close to us. We don't really notice the uh, the light speed. If we look at the moon three and a half seconds, well, we don't really notice that. And we're also, I think, in a very low energy state. And we're also, um, we we don't have access to deep time, something we also discussed in the geology episode. So we, you know, we, we've discovered between four and 5,000 exoplanets. But how long have we been looking? It's just a few years. I think just the a first few one, years. The first no. one. I think was discovered. Don't don't quote me on this, right? I think the first one was discovered in 1997, mm. uh, 20, 20 plus years ago. That's nothing, man. And if we if we would go, uh, if we would imagine on one of those stars uh, where we have discovered an, an exoplanet, uh, they would look at our solar system with the same techniques that we have. How many of our, the planets of our solar, solar system might they find? Uh, I think of this, take, take one of those solar systems that we have discovered and just to follow your, your argument, right? You're looking back at, at our solar system, you pick up, pick up the sun, almost certainly they would be able to quite easily pick up Jupiter and Saturn. Um, the other planets would be a little bit more difficult, um, but with good instrumentation, they could also pick up Earth and Venus. And with superb instrumentation, they could basically pick up all the major planets in our solar system. And would there be any way for them to tell, again, with the instruments that we have now, that uh, there is life on Earth? That's difficult. Um, 
if there were a if there were a planet elsewhere, right, in, in our immediate neighborhood, let's say within a thousand light years or so, that is similar to Earth and that has life on it, then with a bit of luck, with current instrumentation or instrumentation that my friends are, are currently building, we could detect that that planet was very, very, very special. That is totally unique among those 5,000 planets that we have um, and that its atmosphere does very strange things. For instance, we would notice that the atmosphere of that planet contains free oxygen. That's idiotic. I mean, it is completely improbable that due to natural circumstances, quote unquote, so non-living circumstances, you would have free oxygen in a planet atmosphere. Um, that would be a telltale sign that there is something special going on on Earth. Another thing is, which my, my colleague Franz Snick is working on this, um, is if you look at the polarization the direction in which light uh, vibrates, so to speak. Um, from the polarization, in particular circular polarization, you can also tell something that something very peculiar is happening, happening in the atmosphere of that planet, and so on and so forth. Um, however, just extrapolating from what we know today, in, in my opinion, approximately one or two decades, so 10 or 20 years from now, instrumentation will be good enough to actually see the surface of a large number of exoplanets, right? And in that case, of course, you can go a step further. You can see even more in principle then uh, from outside Earth, from, from deep space, you'd be able to see the forests in Central Africa. Uh, you'd be, see, be able to see Amazonia, right? And think, simply thinking, now look, something with those properties is so extraordinary so different from ordinary oceans, so different from ordinary mountains and, and, and things, there must be something special there um, to jump to the conclusion that that must be life is perhaps a little bit risky, but we'll get there. Mm. We'll get there. And of course, it's. Uh, I love to think about, I love all the alien films and I love to think about extra life and everything like that. But I think when we speak about this, it, you could almost start to think that uh, that's, that's a very far away and big topic, but you could almost start to think that we understand everything about how just life on the earth uh, works. And one of the ways I've been experimenting with is we have, I think each of us, everyone who's listening to this has a kind of a working model of how stuff works. You have to, because if there's a car approaching, you have to kind of estimate how fast does it go. Um, you have to estimate risks of falling and, and everything like that. So uh, in my intuition, um, if I drop a brick uh, and if I drop a piece of paper, the piece of paper is lighter, the brick is heavier and the brick will drop quicker. So I would say heavier objects uh, on Earth, at least, uh, they drop quicker than uh, light objects. That's my intuition. But <laughs> is that the case? Well, that is very, you, you can do a very simple, this is where a physicist would come in, right? I mean, Aristotle said that heavy things fall faster than light things. That was total bullshit. And in, in, in the town where Aristotle lived, the local blacksmith and the local carpenter and the local baker, they knew perfectly well that the 
expression, heavy things fall faster than light things, is bullshit. Except Aristotle was a philosopher and he wasn't a carpenter, and therefore he was believed. Um, the experiment that the physicist would do immediately is make things simpler. You gave the example of a brick and a sheet of paper. You know what a physicist would do? He wouldn't take a sheet of paper and a brick. He would take two sheets of paper. That makes life a lot simpler because you have two identical things. Now, if you drop those two sheets of paper and you do it a, a large number of times, they more or less fall to earth at the same rate. Then you take one of those sheets of paper and you crumple it. You make a little ball out of it. Okay. It's exactly the same paper. You haven't changed anything except you have made it compact. You made a little ball out of it rather than a sheet. And then you drop them again. And of course, you observe that the ball falls faster than the sheet. Therefore, you would immediately draw the conclusion that it is not a matter of weight. It is not that heavy things fall fast. There must be something else, right? And that, of course, is the ratio between area and mass, right? With local density, surface density, as it were. And once you understand that, you will think, what is the difference caused by? Well, that is air resistance. And you will come to the conclusion that air is not some kind of invisible no nothingness. Air is stuff. Air is tangible. Air is real. Air is every bit as real as water and rocks. And then you get the understanding how it is that birds work and bats and insects and things like that. And that is what I'm trying to say with the physics theory. Out of a simple experiment, namely dropping two sheets of paper, compacting one sheet of paper and dropping them again, you evolve and you develop a description of the way not only things that fall, but also the way in which things interact with air. And then you start to understand how birds fly. Right? So this, this is not, it's not simply a separate set of stories. It is one coherent, complete description of the way things fall and the way things interact with the air. And that, that is sort of step by step by step that physics works. Hmm. And then if you remove the, the air, as you describe uh, Huygens did when he, he dropped, uh, he performed this experiment where he dropped two balls, one heavier and one lighter yeah. ball from uh, a, church, a church in Delft. So it's a longer distance and they're heavier. So you don't have so much influence on the air. And the way they measured it is by uh, standing with your back towards it and noticing if you hear one sound or two separate yeah. sounds. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, the, the, brilliant, simple. The experiment is always attributed to Galilei. And mm. Galileo never did that experiment. It just attributed to him. The experiment was done by Simon Stevin, which is a Flemish uh, physicist and engineer. It was done in the year 1585. All right, so long before Galileo. Um, and Stevin used lead balls, right? Because in the case of lead, the, the resistance of the air doesn't matter very much, just in the same case as it, it, it does matter with paper, because paper is light, but lead is heavy. I took two balls. One was 10 times heavier than the other one. And as you said, you know, he said to put one person at the bottom of, of the tower in Delft and ask this person, do you hear one bump or do you hear two? And this person standing with his back to the, back, to the tower, he swore, so help him God, that he heard only one bump. And that was the story. 
And then the conclusion would be, which uh, has been confirmed over and over again, that um, gravity and is unrelated to matter. That is correct. That in, in our time, we call that so-called weightlessness, right? You can sort of float in your, your, your uh, spacecraft around Earth. Um, it looks as if you're weightless. That, of course, is not true because both you and your spacecraft are describing an orbit around Earth. Mm -hmm. But it is the same orbit, even though you know, your mass and the mass of the spacecraft are very different. Because then it gets weird. Because then I would say, okay, we, I know these different forces. If I push a ball, it rolls. It, I give the ball a force. Um, so gravity must work like that. Gravity must be a force that somehow works on objects uh independent of their mass so it kind of adjusts um and i would say well okay what what makes it that something falls down it's because of the force of gravity but your book is called gravity doesn't exist mm -hmm. so <laughs> uh, clearly you don't agree with that well the, the the title of my book gravity doesn't exist was of course a little bit tongue-in-cheek right it was a little bit mm -hmm. of a joke um in uh, on earth it is perfectly okay if you use newtonian mechanics you know sort of the force of gravity and so on and so forth however since 1915 since einstein published his general theory of relativity we know that orbits are not caused by things attracting one another. Orbits are caused by the curvature of space-time. So um, the orbits of the planets are curved, not because the sun pulls on the planets, but orbits of the planets are curved because the sun curves space-time. And that is in a curved space, you follow curved paths, you follow curved orbits. And that also is the reason that all those objects follow the same curved path. Okay, what the, the shortest path between two points doesn't depend on the color of the pencil that you use in order to describe that path. The shortest is the shortest, and that's the end of it. Mm. Um, and that is why the, all those orbits are the same, and that is what causes so-called weightlessness. And the, the the story of general relativity, namely. It is mass that curves space, and in curved space you follow curved orbits. You can summarize by saying gravity does not exist. There is no such thing as an invisible force between Earth and the Sun. It is just the local curvature of space-time that causes Earth to move the way it moves. If there were a difference in the action, depending on the mass, then it cannot be understood how Earth and the Moon would stay together, because the Moon is very, very much less massive than Earth, and therefore, by Aristotle's argument, it would follow a completely different orbit, but it doesn't. So gravity is is an an old name, maybe like uh, sunrise or some some of the other terms. We we know the sun doesn't actually rise. Uh, Precisely. Well, I mean, we yeah. do this all the time, right? Yeah. You, you you read in in the newspaper, you read the weather forecast. Tomorrow the sun will be shining. Come on, give me a break. The sun will be shining for another five billion years. But if I were to write a weather forecast in a newspaper saying that tomorrow the clouds will intercept the radiation from the sun in such a way that etc., then you know the, the the people in the paper would think that I'm crazy. Um, 
there is no such thing as temperature. Temperature is a historical name for the average energy per particle, but you don't say that when the water is too hot. And similarly with the sunrise, the sun doesn't rise. In, incidentally, there's a good thing that you mentioned that, because one of the things that I point out in, uh, in my book on uh, uh, gravity doesn't exist, and also in, in a sense in uh, Einstein's travel agency, is that um, you, you are perfectly free to continue using the old terms. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Um, as long as you realize that saying there is a sunrise is not an expression in physics, it is simply an everyday thing that you say. No. Um, and it gets a little bit pedantic and a little bit boring uh, to, to warn for that every time. Right. Could go around. Well, actually, well, actually, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Right. I think uh, Wittgenstein would say you're playing a different language game if you're seeking, saying what is what a beautiful sunrise. Maybe you're playing the language game of dating and you're not playing the language game of uh, physics, but we do use many of the same words, I think. Yeah, and we... the, 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 that is correct what you say. There is another distinction, though, um, and that is in, in physics, you do make an effort. At making one using one word for one thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, in poetry, you do the complete opposite. Yeah, um, and that is also something that makes it sometimes hard to explain physics to the general public. When I say energy, when I say momentum, when I say mass, when I say temperature, I mean very, very specific and distinct things. Um, and for for general public, this is not not the case, right? We just as well. I mean, physics is a very specialized kind of thing that you don't particularly want to be bothered with in everyday life. Yeah, yeah, and and I think particle is another example of this, and one of the intuitions again, which I think, like things falling down, is that we generally have the idea that if you set something up, which is maybe an idealization, that you have the same setup. Uh, the same causes, it will always lead to the same consequences. Well, there again, you're going a little bit far now because this 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 would generate another two days worth of discussion. Because <laughs> um, no, seriously, um, it is of course not true that doing things twice in exactly the same way produces twice exactly the same result. But you because you cannot. In, in practice, you just plain simply cannot do the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. right? um, what we do in physics, however, when we do experiments and what we do in astronomy when we make observations is we try to approximate the ideal of doing things over again as closely as we could possibly manage. Right. Um, so the net result of two experiments are always going to be just a little different. And the, it, it takes skill and it takes, well, it, it takes professional attitude, as it were, to, to deal properly with those deviations, right? Um, a, a case in point is really quite simple. Anyone can, can do that, right? You, just, you, you, you take, a, you take a, a rifle and you mount it in a very, very strong position and you shoot at a distant target and you do that again and again and again and again. And you shoot a hundred bullets, 
And those 100 bullets are not all going to end up in exactly the same spot. Because, you know, maybe the second shot was a little bit more wind, and maybe the third shot, the cartridge was a little bit different from the first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, if you take all of those shooting results together, you can describe by mathematical techniques what the deviation from the average is, whether there is an average to begin with, or what the deviation from the average is, and how the deviation from the average behaves. That's called statistics. And the science of statistics is extremely subtle. And we use this in order to come up with a number that says how reliable this result is. If it was always exactly the same, the reliability would be 100% and life would be easy, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with, with natural uncertainty, so to speak, is an extremely important part of science. Um, and therefore, the fact that something doesn't precisely happen the same, precisely the same way, is not unnatural. It is something to be expected. You have to deal with it, and we have techniques for that. Yeah. I really like this insight I have. Uh, I'm looking up. I have this book from uh, Ilya Prigogine. Prigogine, yeah. Yeah, uh, The End of Certainties. I think this is a really important idea as well, that um, at least in the fields where I work, we still speak about, there's an idea that we have for physics. So we have the idea, or the natural sciences in general, we have the idea, well, we live in the messy social world. And we can we cannot predict every every millimeter every uh, aspect of it, but ideally we could if we would follow the methods of the natural sciences. Because in the natural sciences, the foundation is that if you shoot one particle somewhere, it will always land in the same place, and there you you have you have a certain certainty. But as I understand it, uncertainty is not just it's not just uncertainty because we're we don't have the right instruments yet or the right experiments, right? There's a fundamental uncertainty if you look at the you know what one proton does or one photon. Well, you have to make a distinction here between large and small. Hmm. Um, there is a fundamental difference between uh, the quantum uncertainty, all right, uh, and the the statistical uncertainty, right? Um, in statistical uncertainty, uh, that follow uh, obey certain laws, and one of those simple results is that if you do the same experiment many, many, many times over again, the average, con- we call the term we use is converges. The average becomes better and better and better known. Okay, if you do a hundred experiments, then you you do ten times better than um, when you did just uh, 10 experiments, right? Um, And the behavior of that uncertainty in in the large, okay, with big objects like you and me and tennis balls and things like that, is something that is reasonably well understood and something that you can analyze and something that you can improve on by doing the same experiment more frequently. Right, that is quite straightforward. Mm-hmm. The, the technical term for this is sample size. You can increase the sample, right? Um, in fact, it is not too hard to show that the uncertainty decreases with the square root of the size of the sample. Okay, if you make your sample times a hundred times bigger, 
then your results get square root 100, which is 10 times more precise. Um, with elementary particles, such as electrons and, and quarks and things like that, it's a completely different story. Um, I hesitate to even say something about, say anything about it, because just to explain the beginnings of that <laughs> would be very, very, very difficult, in particular yeah. because we only have an audio channel, um, and th that, that would be really tough. Yeah. But it is drastically different. The uncertainty on a quantum level is intrinsic. You cannot improve on that by uh, sh shooting more particles, so to speak. It, it's just simply intrinsic uncertainty, something that is always there, something that cannot be removed or circumvented. So the moment you say quantum, quantum mechanics, I think the, the first idea that maybe comes up is quantum mechanics is weird. And yes. Uh, well, Sabine, <laughs> Sabine Hossenfelder says we should stop saying that. It's just uh, relating to uh, what we talked about before at intuitions. We have certain intuitions, certain ways of thinking, like thinking maybe in terms of Newtonian physics. She says, well, we just have to get used to it. And one of the things that she recommends is uh, playing this uh, game. I don't know if you know it, Quantum Moves. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll put the link in the description. It's actually by playing it, you contribute to uh, to science because it it kind of mimics the behavior of experiments. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, I've been <laughs> trying to play it an hour every day. Uh, oh, so far, my score is not so so high. But do you think I could develop this intuition that you probably have of uh, I just say quantum behavior? Oh, absolutely. As there are two things I should say about it. I mean, it's not just simply quantum mechanics. All of physics is weird. Every single bit of real physics is odd, is weird, is strange. Physics is very strange. But I always say physics is strange, but you get accustomed to it. I mean, we physicists, we, we deal with it, we, we breathe it, we eat it, we drink it. It's just part of our life. And that means that we get accustomed to it, right? And that is partly what I think you mean by intuition. And it, oh, yeah, what you say is correct, right? By by doing things of that type more frequently, you may quite easily uh, develop an intuition for the for the way it is. Um, of course, the intuition that we have on on our own scale, the intuition of tennis balls and the intuition of swimming and things like that, is drastically different from the intuition you would develop if you were an electron. Um, yeah, that, that, that is true, but it is weird. Um, if you again, keep keep on, on on a ball game and things like that. You 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 kick a football or you hit a tennis ball, and w when you see the way the ball moves and the way the ball spins in the in the air and things, mm. you think about it long enough. It's really strange. It's odd. Go, go lie on your, your back in the meadow and see big clouds passing overhead. The way you see those clouds move is familiar to you. But if you, if you take your distance from that familiarity, you will have to conclude that what you see is really weird, is really strange, is really yeah. odd. There's right. this, this phrase by, I think his name is Kumagai, making the familiar strange as a scientific practice, but it's something you can do in uh, everyday life as well. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that, that I, I like to do is if you look at the moon or you look at the stars, to just imagine 
to to kind of feel the relativity of motion to imagine hey uh i'm moving <laughs> yep and, oh, yeah, try, absolutely. and trying to kind of make it physical as well but there's one other example that you use sometimes which i really like is when you're uh how how we can see quantum effects in everyday life because sometimes people say well it's it's too small we 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 cannot say it anywhere but then you speak about um uh i think it's uh, looking out of the window yeah uh, right yeah. in 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 my book gravity doesn't exist and i use the following example you go stand on the ground floor in in a room in the evening and it's dark outside and you have the lights on inside if the curtains are open and you look at the window you see your face reflected in the window now a neighbor who walks by on the outside can also see your face through the same window and when you think about that that is completely crazy because the light that goes from your face to the to the window pane and goes back to your eyes is the same light that goes through the window and can be seen by the neighbor so it is the same light that goes through the window and can be seen by the neighbor. So this experiment shows to you straight away that in our universe, the same causes do not always have the same effect. Which brings me to something in, in terms of how you can see how weird things are, how strange things are in physics. That is in part related to this problem of quantum mechanics. Do the following experiment. You stand next to a canal and you throw a stone into the water. Then you see around the place where the stone hit the water, a, a set of circles that spread out from that center. You say, well, that's very simple, you know, why not? I'm making waves, just a wave, right? Then you ask yourself, what is it that is moving? You see those circles expanding away from the place where the stone hit water. But is it the water that is moving? No. It is, you're not making a hole in the, in, in the water where the water is spreading to the outside. So what is it that is spreading? What is spreading is motion of the surface of the water, but the water itself stays in the same place. Now, you do the same experiment again. You do the following. You put a little cork on the surface of the water and you make a wave and you do not watch the wave as it propagates over the water you watch that cork what you will see is that when the wave comes by the cork makes a small circular motion on the surface of the water so what you call a wave doesn't exist what you call a wave is actually the collective circular motion of all the surface parts of the water now that I've, you already understand that this is really odd, just in the way a sunset doesn't exist, a wave doesn't exist either. A wave is not something that you can hold and that you can put in a box. A wave is, is something that looks in a particular way, like these expanding circles on the surface of the water, that looks because it is a collective circular motion of the surface of the water. And is it truly strange? Right. When you think about it, and that is why I'm saying effectively, when you think about it deeply enough, basically all of physics is strange, is weird, but it gets accustomed, you get accustomed to it. Besides which, you can do experiments 
what I'm saying just now, throwing a stone in the water and seeing how the water moves, something anyone can do. You don't need a big laboratory for that. You just have to be attentive. Yeah, I think the, the technical term for that is that uh, emerges, or we could say even in everyday language, we know that there are some more elemental ways in which things work which are different from our intuition in everyday life when i take the bus when i uh, make cross the street and i estimate how fast the car is moving towards me which already uh ignores that motion that is who is moving towards who <laughs> All right so the the everyday world we experience now it's very strange because it emerges from something it's like maybe like those waves the large scale effects emerges from something which if you start to study it, works in very different ways than the emergent things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, in, in the case of water wave, it's what we call a collective action. Okay, so a, a mode, the word is a collective mode of the, the motion of the surface of the water. But when, when you think about emergence, you, you can sort of follow upwards uh, the, the levels in physics. You, you start with the quarks and electrons and photons, those quarks make elementary particles, make particles that, that are called you know, nucleons, uh, protons and neutrons. Protons and neutrons make atomic nuclei. Around atomic nuclei, you have half electrons, and the electron with the atomic nucleus makes an atom. Now, those atoms can sort of stick together and make molecules. Those molecules can make bigger things like you and me. Then um, every time you go up one level, well, up is perhaps not the right word. And every, let, let's use it anyway, right? Every time you go one step further in this particular hierarchy, you get a set of phenomena that are not just simply more than what went before, but are very different. They're qualitatively different, right? If, if you have uh, one electron, you've seen them all throughout the entire universe. But if I take your DNA molecule, that is unique in the universe. There's no second one anywhere, right? Because there are so many, 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 many atoms that the whole thing is made of. And therefore, in some cases, you get some sort of, you might call it a hierarchy of levels where things get not only more complex, but also different in, in a qualitative way. In a qualitative sense, a complicated molecule, like, like an enzyme in your body or something, is drastically different from just a collection of particles. Yeah, yeah, and it's just fascinating how this alternates. Um, if we just go back a little bit to what we spoke about before, about the formation of stars, and in the end, coding molecules and evolution, and then these coding molecules can be complete, could be completely different on different planets. So. Uh, maybe from that point you could say, well, there's, we cannot say anything about it. But then what you explain is that we do know, well, you can, you can kind of theorize that the most likely planets to form are uh, water planets, or at least planets with a lot of liquid. And the way dreams of liquid behave is those are emergent phenomena that will be the same if the planet has gravity. And the way evolution happens, uh, will, if, if there is some life, whatever life is, emerging in those waters, 
it will probably if it wants to swim you i think you say it won't be shaped like a bus because that's not <laughs> <laughs> that's not a very natural way to interact with liquids of um yeah so my conclusion from that was and i don't know if it's correct but if there is uh, another planet and there is uh, it's a water planet and there's a exo life there which is complex that maybe uh, maybe if it would swim in our oceans we wouldn't even recognize it well i i think we would recognize it because it, it would of necessity be be relatively big right or it would be, be it wouldn't be on the level of individual molecules it would be an organism okay mm -hmm. it would be it would be well by my biological friends tell me that it is very likely that the cell so the cell wall is an, an absolutely necessary part of any any biological system anywhere in the universe right because if you don't have a cell wall then the processes inside there would wash out you and need the average a kind of average. container uh, yeah, right. yeah a kind of a soup pan to yeah, uh, yeah, exactly yeah, keep you have to separate yeah. it is exactly what you say you have to separate yourself from the rest of the universe um so um that okay but the processes that make that cell wall, the processes that are going on inside and stuff, we have zero guarantee that it would be similar to, to what is happening on Earth. Um, my guess is that the answer is yes, it would be very similar because we are made out of those completely common atoms, right? If we were made, if life on Earth were made out of very exotic molecules, with exotic combinations of exotic atoms and things like that. Um, well, you know, um, then, then I would say, well, that is so improbable. In fact, some um, biologists also already say that, well, it is a little bit improbable because of the appearance of phosphorus in our DNA. But carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen are extremely common in the universe, but phosphorus mm. is not really quite so common. Now, the argument that many people uh, use against that, and I, I also use that argument in my book, uh, yeah. Einstein's Travel Agency, is that probably life on Earth originated not on the surface, but in the deep oceans next to those ocean vents where, yeah. where hydro, hydrothermal water is coming up. You know, they call them black smokers, and these black smokers carry all manner of uh, minerals that are carried up from the inside of Earth. And phosphorus is one, one of those minerals, sulfur also, by the way. And quite possibly, life started there because, life, because phosphorus and, and uh, sulfur were common under those specific, specific uh, circumstances. There's, there's no proof, there's no guarantee until we find a second Earth somewhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating to think about exo-life as an actual scientific possibility. Um, when do you think, what is your prediction if something will be discovered? Well, it's very, very hard to put an actual date on that. But my colleagues who build instruments are so clever and they're building such wonderful gadgets with which to study the universe that it is almost certain that I'm being too conservative. <laughs> uh, my, my guess is that within the next 10 years, we will find the first hints of, well, life is perhaps a little bit difficult to say, 
but in, in the next 10 years, we will find the first hints of what I technically call non-equilibrium chemistry on other planets, right? So you see certain chemical signals that cannot be explained by, by ordinary uh, processes in, shall we say, a planetary atmosphere or planetary oceans. There must be something else. Yeah. The case on Earth, of course, that we already know is you find oxygen, free oxygen in, in planet Earth's atmosphere, which is really weird. There's no natural processes behind, besides life that produce that. So that'll be 10 years. Um, 10 years after that, so 20 years from now, I think it is likely that uh, my colleagues will by then have found distinct signals of prebiotic, prebiotic chemistry on other planets. So the sort of complicated carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen chemistry that almost certainly existed on Earth 3.8 billion years ago. And what happens after that is, I think, very, very difficult to guess. Of course, that is not what many people want to know. They want to know, is there going to be life like us? Is there going to be intelligent life outside? Yeah. The discovery of intelligent life almost certainly will depend on pure accident, pure luck. Yeah. There is no way in which we can reliably search for that pointedly the way we search for chemistry signals on other planets. There's, we wouldn't be, know how to begin looking for intelligent life outside planet Earth. Yeah. If we do pick up signals, it will be just by accident. Right. Um, an example that I give in, in my book, um, Einstein's Travel Agency, is that the radar from Schiphol Airport can basically be seen throughout our entire galaxy. Now, if there is them out there, our XO neighbors, so to speak, um, they could in principle see us no matter where. Of course, the radar hasn't been running forever. It's like about 50 years or something thereabouts. So there is a sphere around planet Earth with a radius of 50 light years, and inside that sphere, anyone who is there could have seen us, right? Could have seen our radar signals by accident. They wouldn't be looking for Schiphol Airport. They would just happen to stumble upon that signal and think, now that's weird. Okay, that must, must be something that is artificial. In the same way, we could purely by accident pick up signals from an extraterrestrial civilization it could happen tomorrow and it would happen never. We have no idea. Yeah. And of course you say, well, if we pick up something, it will probably not be complex life. But of course we know how, how things work. It will be a huge, huge, huge news event. There will be a hype. There will be a run on subsidies. There will be a lot of people who, who want to speak about that. And of course, you're going to be invited uh, in all those uh, talk shows and there will be wild, <laughs> wild speculations no matter how much you try. So what? So, given that you, I think we can say fairly certain there's a very high chance that this, will, this news will break somewhere in the, in the coming years or, or decades. What would your main message be? What, what would be the main message that you would want to communicate if that happens? Or I, wish I should say when that happens. Well, there's two things, right? There's one is, of course, I would really want to, to query my colleagues, you know, precisely what is it that you have found 
precisely how did you do that? How reliable is it, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because we've made claims before that they didn't turn out to be correct. So from the science part of the, of the whole thing, I would really want to participate in, in the show, you know, participate in what is going on. Um, it would be too easy to tell the general public, ha-ha, we told you so. I mean, technically speaking, that would be correct. Okay, we, we do predict that there is almost certainly life outside Earth, but, but it would be it would be unfashionable to sort of say, well, haha, I told you so. Um, what the, the, the basic message I would want to convey to people there is a message that I also try to give when I stand in front of an audience, but it's a message I to also give to my students and my graduate students. And that is very simply this. Remember, remember, do not think too soon that something is impossible. We have a tendency of saying, well, yeah, that can't be right, that can't be possible, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, indeed, some things are impossible, but more is possible than you think. So if 20 years from now we find signs of life outside Earth, I say, okay, that's a good example. Do not think too soon that something is impossible. Vincent, thank you very much for speaking with me. I have much more questions. Uh, I hope uh, you will answer them another time. It's very nice for you to invite me. Thank you very much for that. And I hope to talk to you some other occasion. And thank you for listening. It turns out theoretical physics is complicated. Who could have known? At the end of my conversation with Vincent, I had many questions left. For instance, what is the most important unresolved physics question of our time? And how might we go about solving it? Vincent was gracious enough to agree to have another conversation. In this episode, we mainly talked about astrophysics, and in the next, we will explore theoretical physics. If, like me, you only vaguely remember your high school physics, check out Vincent's book Gravity Does Not Exist. For other episodes and how to support this podcast, check out livefromplatoscave.com. I hope to see you again next month.